Hi again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This week, Richard and I are um, in rare air. We're broadcasting live um, from Rod Makers at Gray Rock, and our guest today is Chris Bogart. Uh, Chris is an extremely talented uh, rod maker, uh, has a lot of experience and uh, a lot of knowledge to share, and so we sit down and have an enjoyable conversation with him, and uh, I think even though it's a little technical in parts, everybody will enjoy it. There's some good human story stuff in there, too. So, All right, so there you have it. That's the intro. We're going to uh, blast right over to the podcast, and thank you for listening. Hello. John and I are here today with Chris Bogart. We're at the uh, Gray Rock Gathering in beautiful downtown Frederick. And uh, Chris has kindly uh, agreed to do a podcast with us, and he's a rod maker, a very good rod maker from Luray, Virginia, right? Right. You guys are up in the valley? Uh, Yeah, we're in the Center Valley uh, from my shop. I have good views of the Blue Ridge, uh, Shenandoah National Park. Uh, We got Luray Caverns, a lot of people go through. And I have the Shenandoah River, the South Fork of the Shenandoah River. Sure. Fantastic smallmouth fishing on the East Coast there. Well, Chris, is, uh, he, you lead the, the Rod Makers Gathering in, the, in Roscoe, the, the one in New York? Yeah, uh, I took that over. I got one. stuck with that there one. There you go. I got stuck. Uh, uh, Kim and Willis ran it, Reed. And they says, well, you do it next, you know, whatever. They, I think they did two or th- three years. And then I got stuck, unbeknownst to myself, for 10, 12 years, and I think. that's the, the museum in, is that Roscoe? Uh, yeah, the Catskill Fly Fishing Center yeah. and Museum. Yeah, yeah. And... You guys inherited the Everett uh, Carmichael shop. Uh, yes, okay. uh, that was a whole other story, but... We built, we outgrew the old Ed Center building. Uh, I got accused of making it too big. We have 135 people when I was in the, doing it. But the rod makers provided the energy and drive every year. And you know you have success when you have Joan Wolf shows up and spends the whole day with you uh, helping people cast and do that. So when they expanded the building, we have the Wolf Gallery on the top, and then we have the Rod Maker Shop below. And this was an attempt to provide rod makers with their own museum, uh, working museum. This is not a static look at the displays. You have the two Halstead, have the Halstead Mill that belonged to Gillum, and the Halstead Mill that Hal Bacon had, left over from Payne, the, uh, the Beffler, they work. Uh, you also have uh, the Leonard Lathe, uh, you have Garrison's workbench, his forms, the original Garrison binder, uh, a lot of other equipment. So we can give classes, they give classes there every year. So something they organize and yes, advertise uh, through the museum? Uh, in fact, they aren't here. Um, uh, 
trying to remember. Uh, it lived. Uh, her family had farms down there. She wrote the books. Kathy Scott. Kathy Scott and David. David Berglow. Yeah. They give it. Uh, they've been giving the classes up there. Come down. Art Port would help them and everything. Uh, sometimes Tim Abbott will come up. But they got the workbenches set up. This is one place the rod makers can go to see their history and the collection of rods. We can take out Hat Mill's original 50 DF. And people didn't realize the original DF, which I took the taper from, we did as a demo, is there was actually two tips. There was a dry fly tip and there was a wet fly. Oh, now wow. the wet fly tip wasn't really good for casting, but People have to understand why fly rods had two tips. It's not because they're fragile. In the Catskills, in the spring, up through the end of June, they have tremendous dry fly hatches. You know, they have, you know, uh, hatches, you know, they same, you know, the Cahills, the uh, Hendersons, March Browns, uh, the green drakes, yeah. Uh, uh, you had an ISO hatch too, don't you? Yeah. And then everything pretty much ends off in the summer and is basically wet fly fishing. Then you get uh, some sulfurs and olives in the fall and caddis. So you had this time where people didn't have as much money as we had, didn't have 15 rods. They had to have one rod to do all the fishing. So during the dry fly hatches, you had a dry fly tip. And then in the summer, where it's basically wet fly fishing, you put on the heavier tip. And then in the fall, when you did it. So rods cost a good part of a month's salary back there. That's what people miss. People want, oh, I need two tips because they may break. I can throw a bamboo rod on and step on it. It ain't going to break the bamboo, unlike fiberglass or graphite. Right. Slam a graphite rod on the table and tell you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was some of the misconception people have today. Oh, I want two tips and I want both dry. We don't have the dry fly. They didn't have it. So people out of necessity had to have one rod buy one rod that cost a pretty penny for the whole year's fishing. So so when did rod makers get away from du the the duality, the 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 dual tips and they became like that, a spare that is something the... I would say lost in the sands of time. You know, people forget their history. You know, we keep making the same mistakes again. <laughs> Indeed. And when you start looking at these people want to do Payne, Leonard, Rods, uh, Grangers, Dickens, these all built in the 40s, 50s, 30s, classic Rods. I have uh, a Divine, probably uh, dates from 1920 or thereabouts, still fishable today. These guys knew what they were doing and they did it empirically they figured out the tapers. These are good tapers. And they made a lot of them. But now, because guys are trying to reinvent the wheel, they haven't learned the lessons that these old guys were real masters of their craft. It's, you know, I, 
been in rod making now for about 20 years. And, uh, you know, you go through this stuff and you read the books and you hear everybody talk and, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on today. I mean, there's some innovations going on. You know, we can twist this a little bit and tweak that a little bit, but it's basically the same stuff they did then. Just yeah. a little, you know, just, you know. Yes, yeah, but it's all been part said of before. the problem, yeah. part of the problem was a lot of the old factories never shared the information. You know, it's a trade secret. So you had, Garrison had to figure it out on his own. Yeah. You know, I mean, you got amateurs teaching amateurs. Well, the <laughs> rod making today, it's, you know, the, with the tools and the materials and the adhesives and we all got the support you get on YouTube and every place else, and guys like you, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly accessible as compared to what it was back when Claude Kreider and the guys were horsing around with it. I mean, they had well, to be, they had to think Kreider's things book, out. You have Kreider's book, you had Garrison, George Barnes had his, and that's another story on that one. Uh, uh, Wayne's book probably helped more people. Uh, George Maurer actually had his initial book, which I have, which most, uh, there's very few copies of that. And then it was republished in the hard copy form. But that was limited. You had power fibers, the planing form. So we were trying to share information. But you go back and get the old rod maker skilled, you get to some of the Dickerson's information. These guys used to do letters to each other. You know, Dickerson, Garrison, Halstead, Gillum, they wrote each other letters. He didn't have, like this, a podcast. I'm doing videos and they're gonna be on YouTube or they're gonna do a virtual gathering. The guys in Sweden are running it, you know, or Colorado and the guys in Australia watch it. I mean, we have worldwide access to information, but what we need to do it's go back and really understand what these guys did accomplish. You know, some of these uh, old rods, you still look at it and says, these guys knew how to do tapers, but it was empirical, not using, uh, rod DNA is still the best program for doing anything with right now. <laughs> but that make, you know, I can look up 650 tapers I have. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the old guys seem to have, I don't know how they did it, but I mean, if they just made it and tried it and liked it and but we had sorted it off and went from there and changed it a little yeah. bit and did it again. You know? Yeah, and real simple things, people don't realize just how to mount ferrules, what you use as an adhesive. The uh, vine had adhesive and it was a pine tar pitch they made. Okay. They were all hot melt on, and they don't never come off. I bet not. Pain. How do you like control the mess coming out of the end of the ferrule with that? Yeah. They had ways. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. It's nothing. Is you know I use ferrule tight, a hot melt, Martin he's for arrows and stuff, and that works good. Because I get these guys. Oh, I use JB Weld or whatever. Wait a minute. It never comes off, right? Yeah. Now, what if you have to repair that rod? It never comes off. You have to destroy a rod to get a uh, ferrule off with JB Weld. <laughs> but Leonard and Payne 
didn't use an adhesive. They pressed them on. That's why they all pinned. The Irish guy, Sharps, <coughs> he used to do a heat fit. Yeah, they basically um, uh, white lead with maybe a little bit of uh, shellac in it. Put it on, drill the hole, pin it, and those things don't come off. They don't. They don't wear out. They don't crack. You know, you can't go buy the cheap ferrules on the uh, uh, production rods or you know trade rods as they used to call them. Mm. The Montagues and the, they were basically chrome-covered brass. They cracked and everything. But then you get to guys like Granger. I have their adhesive. They use Indian head head cement. <laughs> that is what that is. And the trick to get those off is you heat it once, let it cool, heat it again, and then you can pull them off. Really? That's what they use. Needs two heat cycles. It needs two heat cycles to pull it off. But today, with some of the hot melt and other heaters, the guys that put it on with epoxy, I was originally taught by Wayne to use a DEFCON 5-minute. Well, that's a bad idea because we discovered that some epoxies react with the nickel and the copper. And they, when it comes off, you see this white powder. That's the cause of those issues. So, but other people tell us, you know, Tim Abbott's presentations on how to clean with Scotch-Brite. I mean, that this scratching and everything, the inside, that's be it. Either you can uh, well, take well, an airbrush well, 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 or... Wait a second. He's saying use Scotch-Brite on a ferrule? Yeah, inside, inside. To clean it, it was designed by NASA, for NASA to uh, clean metal so they can be welded or put together. Oh. So you basically do that if you're going to use anything to wash it out with, use DNA and not mineral spirits because mineral spirits leave a, resi a residue. DNA, de denatured alcohol, basically uh, leaves no residue. You just look on it clearly. So we have guys spreading good information that people have to pick up on. Well, but how to too. sort it out? He did a really good thing. You know, last time he was at Grey Rock, I think he talked about how to clean ferals and the importance of cleaning ferals before you yeah. put them on the uh, on the rod. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is maybe a good time to dispel some old wives' tales: uh, lubricating the ferals, nose grease. Uh, no. or I don't put anything on ferals. They see that's, you cross, that's what you have. <laughs> You have two types of ferrules out there. You have on a uh, Leonard, Payne, Thomas, Edwards, and Dickerson, really good, hard-drawn nickel-silver. Nickel-silver is self-lubricating material. When you get to the trade rods that were made from chrome-colored brass and everything, let me work on that. But with nickel silver, you don't do that because that's dirt. And you take exactly. any noise, it basically is counterproductive. You're, you're well, going to make it hard to get your The only advice contaminate. I give people if they're going out, say, salmon fishing all day long, they know going to be in the wind, is uh, 
ivory or lux soap a little bit on that, put it together, and then you can get it apart because water is actually an enemy because when you that pop is you're breaking the vacuum. Right. If you have something in between water drawn in there, the vacuum isn't given. It's gonna exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's the quality of furrows. But it crosses over. Oh, I use this on my rod. Well, he got cheap trade rods. He, you know, not quality rods, with quality furrows. And you ask any of these guys, oh, they build great quality rods. I make the best furrow. I have the best this. I got. But then you got these wives' tails. Yeah. You, make, you make your own furrows? Yes. All of them. All of them. Okay. I'm one of the few people I have. Yeah, we were talking earlier. Uh, uh, you've made ferals for me and for repairs before, yeah. Yeah. I reproduce uh, uh, Leonard Payne. I got the original shop drawings. In fact, we got the way Leonard did it, and this is old school before my, I, I converted everything to a spreadsheet, you know, Mark. Okay. But they had a board with one-inch lines with the lines for the different ones, so you, you could take the calipers and move it up and... To cut, you know, oh, bark. Wow. This is old school. Now I cut my nickel silver. I have a little chop saw that I have a little <coughs> friend of mine made it with an LED slide thing. So I have a digital slide. I can measure lengths and cut them exactly. And that was one of my big things. How do you cut it off each time? You know, they made lots, but I have a drawer bench. You've seen, I think. Still have videos on that. Uh, I draw, uh, have all the dies, and we draw. We got into buying nickel silver tubing, the original Zimni buy. Uh, that is a whole story that started me on this slippery slope of making furrows. Really? Because, see, John wanted the quad rod. He just wanted to buy from Bailey Wood furrows that he didn't slit yet. You know, I mean, he, all of them, his oh, were six yeah. lines. Yeah, non-threaded. He just wanted to wedge it and clean them. Well, Bailey wouldn't do it. So he got up John's higher. That's where we did the original nickel silver buy. And we got 18 people spend not quite $1,000 a piece that cost us $18,000 for 100 pounds of the sizes and stuff like that. Because the way the marketing was is you could buy 25, but it cost you twice the much. If if you buy 100 pounds, it became cost effective. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to find a financial delta. Yeah, yeah because it's the non-RE of setup, you know, non-recurring engineering costs for each size you draw. And we got that stuff, and then people wanted some more. And then we ran into, we're going back to Dickerson in Rodmaker's letters. Um, he has one I wrote, and I think I had it in that present, uh, presentation I gave, about the cost. That's why Dickerson made his draw bench to pull the thing because he couldn't afford to buy. The last time we went to do it, we had to buy Mother Tube. That was cost effective because the same buy in 98, that would have been in, I think, 18 or so, 17, 18, was up to over 100 and 
$8,000. And now, today, I bet it's over 200 for nickel silver. Wow. With you know, the demand, you know. Yeah. Huh. So. It kind of pushes ferro making into another dimension, yeah. Yeah, but we were, I was able to find a little shop, mom and pop shop. I finally got drawing dies. I made headsets made up, everything. People could, I could sell mother tube, and we sell like 12 or, you know, when you can sell it for like $15 a linear foot. You know how you can make three sets of furrows out of a linear foot of nickel silver, draw it down. It's very cost effective because the most expensive component on your rod today is the furrows. Yeah. Easily. It's more than the real sea. That's that's pretty interesting to hear given it's the elaborate nature of some of the real seats and such. Yeah. Well, you could always spend more. <laughs> yeah. You can spend more. You don't necessarily get more. Gotcha. You can spend more, but it's the most important functional part of the rod. And Payne, Jim Payne says, and when we uh, was talking to the guys, it's a complete package. The rod, the taper, and furrows are together. I get these guys arguing about, oh, you're scraping off power, this and that. And when they get the taper and the thousands and they arguing all this, and then they stick a Super Z on a pane. Now that ferrule will weigh 33% more than the original pane ferrule. It's like taking the original pane and taping a nickel <laughs> to the ferrule and trying to cast and say, oh, this feels good again. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Ferrules are a critical step. I mean, that's what I tell guys when they have the workshop is this is your last best chance to screw up your rod. You know? Yeah. And you, if mounting, I know a couple famous rod makers that only use Super Z because they're easier to mount and they don't want to mount step down, which is no big deal. I, I gave those demonstrations at the Catskills using my little Derbyshire leg, but I just use a file. It, it's no big deal to mount step down. But they weigh less. And why did Leonard and Payne? Well, you get a smoother rigid. transition through the taper too, right? Yeah. And Halstead made the design, and what Dickerson never found out was the male cap uh, on the Payne and Leonard. The OD of the male cap is about five to six thousand less. So visually, it flows better than say a Dickerson rod. But Dickerson drew his own. I have all the sizes on, but his was slightly different, smaller dimension, but he had longer tabs than any of the Payne and Leonard's. So you have to get into that aspect of the rod building and uh, uh, taper designs and understand it's a complete package. It's not a taper and then we just stick stuff on randomly. Yeah, I mean, it's when I learned early on the fly fishing, it's a, it's a taper system that starts at your shoulder and ends at the fly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I taper That's a great design. Way to say it. Taper design. I tell people if you're ham radio, the butt is your power generator. The mid of the whole rod is nothing but a transmission line. And the antenna is the tip, and you got to get that power generated, flow through the rod, and out. 
any of these waves in the line or any of this bouncing of tip means you got power reflection back. You got a standing wave in your taper. And certain rods you cast and it's smooth, it doesn't bounce, they got it right. You got all the energy into that line. So it's, you know, that's my two cents on the whole deal, but it's so important to think of the whole rod building as a complete package. Um, part of it is, George Maurer used to say, it took me a year to learn how to build a rod. It took me two years to learn how to finish a rod. <laughs> to make it, everybody has to have their look. You can't randomly do stuff. You can't put school colors on rods and have expect it to go good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, if it looks like a circus wagon, it's going to have trouble getting it taken seriously. But when you see yeah. a rod, you can put a Dickerson over there, a Payne, a Leonard, a Tom. You can recognize them from that distance. Can you recognize your rod at that distance? You got to get a look that you like and consistent, and you got to do it. And that takes a while to develop. And I don't care, you know, I mean, you know, Granger's other things, they, they had their look, which yep. was totally different than anybody else. But you could look and say, oh, that's a Granger. Yeah. I don't care if the variegated threat, good, that looks good, you know. <laughs> but you just can't, if they want to be a professional, you got to get your look. And as I tell a lot of these kids, you can make one great rod. That's easy. Anybody can do it. Making the second one exactly the same is what being a true professional rod maker you get is. The consistency, the, the scalability. Consi it's all about maintaining control of the process. Exactly. Exactly. Usually we start out here, but I guess you know we'll backtrack a little bit, or okay. some people in Washington say we'll circle back. There you go. Uh, how did you get into this to begin with? I mean, you were in the Army for a while, or what a career, yes, but how did you end up broad making? And because I fished, was that time, fishing the Shenandoah National Park, small streams for native brook trout. And I bought a couple uh, Loomis blanks, IM6, great graphite. It's yeah, better than the, the IM4 stuff and IMX, all that stuff. It got too stiff. And, well, we won't go down that. Yeah. But with that, it wouldn't load. You had to have the right tool. And I was reading uh, Fly Rod and Reel or something. Wayne Catnaw had that little ad in it. First rod making class, whatever, at the White, uh, the White River Artesian School, oh, be in Arkansas the next year. <laughs> I said, why not? So I drove the, <laughs> it was a thousand miles. It was a thousand miles from Lorraine, Virginia to the Whitewater Artesian School. We stayed at Blue Ribbon Fly Lodge mm -hmm. shop there. The Everybody one they still use for the SRG, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and they used, uh, we were in the, uh, the Artesian School, it had the benches and everything because they were doing high school. Uh, that's when they shut down all the wood st uh, shops and well, like uh, metal shops shop and high schools and stuff. So they were sending them over for people who wanted to do crafts and that stuff, you know, non-technical, you know, the 
pendulum would swing in different direction that time. So that is how I made my first rod. As we say, we found out in these, the box of uh, photographs out there, a picture of me at that first class he was given. So it was a big deal back then because there was no information. Wait. I said, why not? Let's go. I didn't know nothing. You know, I, uh, we got some stuff in the museum over in Lovells that came from, uh, actually Dick Buss donated, he made rods back in the early 80s. But it's one of those single bolt differential Carmichael's and Garrison, yes. the Carsons. And he had the, uh, you know, the catalog from, I think it was Rick Brevard. They used to sell that stuff back in the 80s. And there's, you know, you look at that and you figure the contrast it to what's available today to what was available then. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. And there's a, uh, a whole other degree of technologies. You know, you can be the hand planer, you got this. Um, the biggest step forward and different was Al Medved's original router based rougher. You know, I mean, Al couldn't do the physical stuff. And I got an original. Oh, yeah? And it's wood, you know, he made me one. I said, okay, let's do this. Signed on the bottom, dated everything. And that spawned, uh, Bellinger made one. Uh, Jim Bureau was making, I don't Bureau know if he was ever making got a one few, in production, uh, but he made he, some, yeah. Yeah. Jim is here now, yeah. first time in, what, 15 years, him and Jan. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, and J.W. J.W., yeah. And, uh, I have two of the J.W.s. I got a second one. I mean, I did, got the flattening on one, then I do the rough. Well, and I wore out the wooden virtual. blocks, then the wooden blocks were doing So he then lined it with aluminum. And now I have a brass insert in them. I mean, I went through more of those. I'm rougher on them. I use more than anybody. He says, I've made more rods on my mill than everybody else combined. <laughs> but we went through the technology advancing. So I saw the strips now because we had access to the Usland saw. Well, sorry, it's not the gang saw, the Bellinger, which is, no. Um, I'm trying to remember Jim. He's down in Tennessee. He was a reverend. Mm -hmm. He had the stuff. He picked that up, sold Dennis. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. He's up in Hancock, New York. He has the original Usland mill. But uh, we ended up, and we made a version of the using, instead of using a regular thin saw blade, we used the bandsaw, new technology. So oh, I right. saw the strips, you know, you can gang saw it, and now I got the ruffers, I got Abbott's uh, presses, and then I had JW's first mill, because he first demonstrated it at Corbett Lake. And me and John looked at it, Said, yeah, this is the way to go. He said, oh, you got to have the strips prepped and you know be perfectly flat and laying in. Going upstairs, John, some guy, oh, that thing is no good. You got to have your strip perfectly flat. And John Zimney looked at him and said, well, 
you got to have your strips perfectly flat if you put them in planing forms, too. Yeah. yeah. It's that's kind of the right. ideal I mean, outcome, isn't it? If you, yeah, if you, you don't do that work up front, everything else is going to go badly. Yeah, yeah, as you say, it's. I tell students, show. I tell my students, your final round to be the sum total of all the mistakes you make in this class. And how well you cover them up. Well, I said the difference between an apprentice and a master is a master knows how to uh, you know, recover from his mistakes. <laughs> and you learn that over the years. But the technology we've gone, yeah, a lot of guys are using roughers, but they love the zen of planing. That's fine. The planing forms we have today are very good. The differential screws, you know, when we went to push-pull, uh, there's some improvements. Abbott had some suggestions for tuning up the old ones. Uh, I had Lewis Martins, which I got the pictures here. Lewis was up here. He took the class. He went on his last fishing trip there. The single bolts? Single bolt, different. Oh, his forms, yeah. Dennis Hyam has one. I gave, donated mine to the museum. They were made in the National Geographic tool shop. Really? For him, he was a legend of all legends at National Geographic. Hmm. They made the whole thing out of tool steel, made the differential screw, but they didn't put the bolts through. They made metal biscuits in the thing to keep the stability. Oh, so through pins? Really? Yeah, no through pins. Metal biscuits, because the differential screws held it together. Yeah. All you needed to keep something from flopping, so metal biscuits actually worked better. Can't argue with success. So, wow. Yeah, but the push-pull actually ended up being a far better way. Yeah. And, but, hand planing, there's a certain zen for a home guy, but I got the first JW, which is, you know, you had to go set the stations and everything. And then Jerry Foster, who has been up here, is uh says yeah that was the only one he he could make that at cnc so he you know he computer programmer you know retired everything because he used to host when he worked for i think uh, lockheed martin the rod makers site but then it had to be transferred uh then he moved to california paradise and i guess he moved up to Oregon and then got burned out a second time. Well, that's right. He's, he got flamed out a couple of years ago, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. So don't live next to him if you don't want to yeah, have a thing avoid him. As, as we sit in the uh, muster area for the uh, fire department. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Picture of a firefighter on the yeah, wall. Yeah, engulfed in Yeah, flame. well, he got out with minutes to spare out of paradise. Mm. He had a neighbor who said, no, I got to go get a few things. He never got them. Mm. So Jerry lost everything. He he tried to grab the computer. It was too bulky. He should have grabbed the hard drive and left. But that's another story. But Jerry, we made the uh, he made the CNC. He had the original prototype. J D J W made the original. I have the first J W production CNC machine. I've done mm. some talks and videos on it. And I can do anything and everything on that machine. 
I remember Jeb Dempsey, he had just bought the Gillum Mill, stopped by my shop, took this, looked at, uh, saw me run a few strips, and he says, you know, right about now the old man, and he was talking about Jim Payne, because he had worked as a teenager in the paint shop, would be wetting his pants. Yeah. It, I mean, it just changes everything. So you're, you're I actually had, beveling with a CNC machine? Uh, yeah, but it's a special purpose. Oh. And I went through the uh, with the first mechanical one. Uh, we had to work out the cutter thing. We finally got the inserts with the carbide, special uh, micrograin carbide inserts, which are not oh. available. Because JW's first was a high-speed steel, and they wore out, uh, I could get about 45, 46 passes on them. Bamboo's hard stuff. It's tough on metal. Silk and yeah. the silica in there. It wears yeah. out high, um, uh, high speed steel. So I just got my new one, everything. And actually, I sold my old one uh, to John, our Dickerson friend. Uh, oh, 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 yeah. 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 Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. A little yeah. inside baseball stuff. Bro. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. But I took out the high. He had problems using the Dickerson mill because he was blowing out tips just because it's the old sound, the vibrations, and if he took out too much, it'd blow the tips. And I says, I don't lose. I put 50 strips in, I get 50 strips out the way he was climb milling up. And I took it out on the back of my old pickup, went to Ohio, Erie, uh, I think, uh, Michigan or whatever area, down there, and had a garage, two saw horses set up, plug it in, and says, okay, where's the strip? Who run it? And ran and cut perfectly. Mm. He, he bought it. Without any level in routine. Oh. Uh, well, you know, it was I a mere demonstration uh, of technology, but uh, he built all those cool. Dickerson reproductions on the old JW mill and didn't use the Dickerson. Well, can't argue with success. <laughs> Keep saying that. But yeah, but it's still there's, true. there's a reason. It's a very reliable. It's but this has spawned. Where do you want to put your time and effort in this hobby? Is some guys just like the quiet planing, but they don't want to rough. I mean, how many guys? Uh, this carpal tunnel thing is bad technique. A lot of it, but. To compensate, you can rough the Medved rougher, as I said, change us for the better. I think. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's like you said it has it spawned J W and you know Dennis Bertram, yeah. uh, Bertram, Bertram Bevler, stuff, and, yeah. and uh, Bevler got one of those uh, right. Bellinger, one of the hand planer friends things. You know? Yeah, and that's a good machine. It cuts them. And all it does is it takes out the grunt work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I got to the point where I'm rod making. Where the parts I hate worse is straightening and crushing nodes and you know that stuff. It's repetitive, repetitive, repetitive stuff. Yes, and repetitive. But yes. you talk about that and it's repetitive. Repetitive. Earlier today with John Long, you know, he did the nodeless thing first demo I saw. It was I think it was at the first Gray Rock, and I had the things. I did the paper for the power fibers for. Uh, I think I did the article about nodeless, and I gave the rod and the bag talk up at the Catskills with 
George Barnes, Bill F Al Medved. And Al made nothing but Nautilus after that. Same thing with Bill Fink and George Barnes. And when George wrote his second book, he had a chapter about that in there, mm. about me in there. So there's different ways, but that solved a lot of problems of pressing, straightening. You know, I saw strips. Uh, it's just making it come out better rods, the consistency. And I remember one time I gave the talk out at uh, the lodge, Redwood Lodge, uh, getting it straight. And the number one thing is consistency in the strips, your angles, your everything. Yeah, if I mean, you have a, a badly prepared strip, you, even though you hand plane, you think you're on dimensions, there's enough variations. That is when you bind it up, straighten it. Guys were trying all kinds of crazy. Oh, I, I put it under a thing, I clamp it, I, no, I roll it, it out. Yeah, iron, iron it. No, really? Really? I come out straight. If you don't have a straight rod when you come out of the binder, well, you, you have some of the mistakes that now caught up to you, and you can't undo those mistakes. Yeah, if you don't do it right in the beginning, it's you know the old quality thing. You know, the rework is bad, and it's, you just got to have good stuff up front to get good stuff at the other end. Yeah, yeah it's engineering. Is you? It's process control. Well, just, just, it's yeah, not yeah, a exactly. random thing. Process, process, process. But in particular in nodes, I found it, you know, some, some cane is just, you know, uh, invested with the devil. I mean, some of that no, stuff yeah. is just plain mean all the <laughs> way through. Just came from a bad and, crap. But, but, yeah, well, you know, you're fighting nodes until you glue the thing in, until you wrap it, until you put varnish on it. I mean, the yeah. nodes until are you send it out to somebody and yeah. they, you know, they don't know. You, you see things in rods. Nobody has made a perfect rod yet. There's nobody made a rod that didn't have a mistake in it. Well, and that it, I know. Well, it, I haven't. I, I I'm going to guess that every maker is their harshest judge. They, um, yeah. I, I, at least I am. Because you stuff know. That I do that it's and it may be minor. I saw an interview, I think, with Vladimir Horowitz, a concert grand uh, pianist. He says, I have never given a perfect concert. I always know I made a mistake or something. I can cover it. The audience does, never knows it. Nobody knows it but me. Mm -hmm. And some of our right. I have a joke that good rod makers know how to bury their mistakes. No. It's not what a you joke. Put, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's what we can do. If you know it's something, I can put a guide wrap over there. I can do something, you know, or minimize it. How do we recover gracefully? Exactly. And you well, know, to I, your point, maybe it's something aesthetic that, you know, non-performance affecting it. Just, yeah, it isn't. I don't know about this for sure, but I've heard that there's guys who hate to make blanks because, you know, you got to hand over a perfect set of blanks. And if you go finish the rod, you have an opportunity to uh, well, deal I, with some issues. Yeah, and uh, a lot Not of things is bad cane. You know, if I have a mark on a cane... Hey, that goes under the grip, under the cork. You bury it, but a customer sees a blank and there's a mark there. You know, I've gotten a call. He says, "Okay, where is it?" He says, "Okay, what goes there?" He says, "Well, it'll be under the cork." I says, "Yeah." 
He says, you look at some of the old trade rods. If you ever done rod restoration or rod repair and stuff, you take off the old cork. There's all kinds of uglies under there. Oh, yeah? The cork may not even go through the real seat and stuff. They put a dial yeah. or a splice in yeah, it and, and stuff all the, on these all trade the rods. strips may not go all the way in, yeah. Uh, when I was doing divine rods for Michael Sinclair, he sent me a midge, you know, uh, a divine midge. You know, everybody said, oh, that's seven foot four weight. No, they're actually seven foot five. You know, seven six was a marketing thing. Seven and a half foot, no, it's seven five, close well, enough. As long close. as the sections are even. Yeah, <laughs> but I looked at the butt of the six strips, five of them had a scarf in it. And they, it wasn't to go nodeless, it was just to get enough strip. And oh, some yeah. of the scarfs were right at nodes or just past nodes. Th really? Yeah. Well, there's a famous name rod maker from the old days who made a wonderful rod for the North Branch and in that area. And a guy up here actually has one, and we got it. And uh, I think Ron Barch and I got a hold of it one year, and we mic'd it out and measured it. And it was, you know, it was a great rod. It cast wonderful, but it, it sometimes that was off 15,000 flat to flat sometimes. I mean, it was, uh, you know, that's the rod, but the rod cast great. I mean, it was, you know. Is, is this the one that we used the taper for mine? Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, it's a hell of a rod, yeah. the real one. But <laughs> I had, ooh. we were casting, me and John right. were over in Spurryville. I don't know how we got there. Herb Morgan, when he was alive, Herb wrote the original, actually his wife, Ardeth, the Cane Currents, the first four, when they lived out in, uh, what was it, uh, Yellowstone, they, they, and they were going to buy the awards. That's a whole other. But she wrote the first four King Currents, and Ed Engel took over after that. But he had a Dickerson 7613, and it was wonderful. We mic'd it, and from flat to flat to flat, it never varied more than a thousandth. Well, that's good. That is, that puts you on hand planers cannot really achieve that level, you know, at all stations. And we, we, we went down that rod. I, I mic'd that thing, and I make that rod. It's a wonderful so rod. So was that flat all the way through? Wow. Yeah. That's great. But it was easy to find it's a milling. It's, now he had control of that process. But it's all cane preparation prior to that. If you have a machine that maintains the angle and stuff, that's where the milling machine shines, that you get yeah. consistent strips, the best. consistent angles. And I teach, I try to teach a hand planer, before you flip a strip over, make sure you have your angles. You take your little center gauge, you go down, you measure everything, then you put the good side down and then plane right down the other side because you know you got a good side there. You don't flip back and forth every five things, some like these guys want to do, you're losing control of the process. Once you got good angle on one side, one side, you got that angle all the way, put it down in the form, keep it there, plane down the other side. You get better strips. But we mm -hmm. talked about it. It's all about getting the angle and consistent strips going into gluing. We had guys gluing up and they were leaving tape on it. It's better. It holds... <laughs> They were their own worst enemies. Little, 
bias on the thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I did. Uh, or torsion or torque or whatever the hell it is. Okay. Makes a twist. Yeah, yeah. I did the uh, <laughs> thing. Oh, yeah, the twist and stuff. I gave the talks on uh, unlocking the mysteries of the garrison binder. It's relatively simple to use. People's. I got a millward four string to show you. That thing's incredibly complicated. But he understood it because he designed it and made it, but he couldn't figure out the garrison. People say, oh, you get to twist it. The twists come from something else, not setting up the garrison <laughs> right. And he said, well, you know, you do tips and they'll twist. No, I go down, I've done down to 40,000 tips on my rod. On my hauls I made. Uh, That's a skinny tip. Yeah, I got that blank and stuff. I did it at uh, Carolina Cane, showed them, and I got the first 13 7 step downs for 7 2. Yeah. Huh. Well, so it's, you know, rod making, you keep learning. You know what I mean? You learn new things. You know, people start learning about thread sizes. You, you, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, you learn about things, but it keeps you going. And you can share knowledge and talk a lot better today than we did when we started out because everybody was, you know, can you imagine writing letters to another rod maker and waiting for replies days mm. later? Exactly. Weeks later? Months. Yeah. Months later, maybe. Yeah. Or if at all, let's. When when we were uh, waiting for Richard to come in, you you and I were talking casually a little bit. Tell tell the listeners about uh, the first rod you made and well, cause when I did kind of cool <laughs> is I have the picture here we found. I took the first class. And I says, well, I fished the Blue Ridge. I need a small stream rod. And I took Wayne's class and in uh, White River, Arkansas, at the Artesian School and stuff. Oh, that's a Paul Young Midge. Well, we talked about the Paul Young Midge is a, a Michigan small stream, not uh, not up here. You go out behind the Bear Factory on the North Branch, you can cast a brown drake, you know, size 10 yeah. to 12. That's what it was designed for, a Michigan small stream specifically was the north branch of the Asable, back behind the thing where the tag altars are for the brown drakes for bigger things and to tackle fairly good sized browns. Now I needed something and I found out after I built it, you know, it's, wait a minute, this doesn't quite load as quick and easy as I need it. Once you make it, you have to pick it up, figure it out, that's where a rod maker has to grow. I fish the little small streams coming off the Blue Ridge Mountains, and they're like five feet across, and all my casts are between five and 15 feet. Oh yeah, there's some pools I can do 20, 25, but that's exceptional. But you're basically going, making a short cast, uh, probably using 5x tippet with about a size 14 to 16 fly. Um, a yellow sally works good. That was one of my favorite things. You can fly in there. Because brook trout, 
there's no hatches up there per se, no big hatches. So you're not trying to match their opportunistic feeders. They lay in the channel, you read the water, you learn all your skills on those small streams that you can apply to a big river. But you gotta do precise presentation, you know, eight feet. You gotta hit a teacup where the thing comes in, it drifts down. If you do that, they take it every time. <laughs> then you go up to the next pool and you keep going up. So that was my first rod. Didn't matter. You go through the whole process on your first rod. We, the, the, the thing that to get to your learning was that you needed a lighter rod. So yeah. you were able to lighten the rod taper-wise, let it flexible. And when I had guys at the Maryland Fly Fishing Show, I had one guy come to, he went over, he was casting for a while. He came back, he says, this is a trickster rod. I says, yes it is, because <laughs> I, I mean, I could do a half roll cast, you bring it up side arm, you can go up this way. I mean, you can get, move that fly forward with trees overhead. I had a guy, friend was a guide, it used to take people up there, hot shots from, let's pick on Ohio since we're in Michigan. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. they get there and he would give them a dozen flies. Here, here's your flies for today. He said, you want, uh, he was trying to explain to them, oh no, I know how to fish. So they're overhead casters mm. on a mountain stream. Mm -hmm. After they lose the first 10 flies, <laughs> <laughs> Stuck in the tree on the first 10 casts. Sick of more flies. Yeah. First 37 liters. He says, do you want to listen now? <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, a lot of them want to use a 8-foot fly rod and stuff. I mean, we don't have it. I had one customer from Northern Ireland, the mountains of Maumee. They have little streams just like we do, but they have native browns in them over in Europe. Oh. And he asked about, you know, small streams. He sent me a picture of his. I sent him a picture of mine and everything, and we bonded. He needed a rod. He eventually came over and flew over. I had the rod ready. He flew over with his uh, wife. They stayed at bed and breakfast. We went up and fished, and he went on the stream, made that, put it in the thing, got a, had the biggest smile on his face. Uh, he also went down, I have a friend, he used to make the bamboo uh, nets and stuff. He was gonna make them a net, a wood net. He made them for sweetgrass, too. He go out, oh, sure. he was a sheriff of Orange County. So CJ made him a net, and oh, we would correspond and everything. but. Guys who fish small streams become fanatics about small streams, mountain streams, especially guys down North Carolina, Southern Virginia. I get these guys and they want small rods. And what surprised me, the guy that sold more of my rods for me was Rich Bradley when he had the fly shop in Livingston Manor. Uh, he lived uh, up, uh, it's a trout stream, 11 miles long up there. He's, they get a lot of people up there, but they had no rods. Upstate New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
when Rich was making his reels. I have all his reels and stuff. Rich was really a great reel maker. But uh, he also had the fly shop, and he asked me about this. Oh, I, got, I need another one. He sold more up there than I was selling in Virginia on the Blue Ridge side. <laughs> <laughs> wherever. Was, yeah. Hey, wherever, yeah. I don't care. But it's, buy two, they're small. <laughs> but I had a customer last year, he said, I need a rod and everything. I asked this, I said, okay, where are you fish? Where you, and what you're fishing for? Because I know what rod will work for that. And he says, you know, you're the only second person that ever asked me that question when I went to buy. Really? Yeah. He says, who's the other? He said, Glenn Brackett. There you go. <laughs> and I know Glenn very well. I was having a discussion because Glenn is out of the business now. Hmm, I know. Yeah. Uh, our guy with the bamboo is taking over, making them. He, 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 that's another story. Uh, but when Glenn left Winston to form it, he needed a new mill. Al Talbert made the original Winston mill, and it was a two-person thing. Peter McVeigh, who ran Corbett Lake, knew Glenn very well, and through Glenn, he was told to, from after Al Talbert passed, to buy Al Talbert's little mill. That's how, and uh, Peter went down to Winston and spent about three weeks, four weeks with him, learning how to build rods using the mill and everything, because Al Talbert's mill was just, the cutter and the patent was just opposite, so one person could put it in and basically mill the strips. Hmm. He had two sets of cutters, one was the roughing cutters, one was his final, he kept extra sharp and everything. So Peter had this little shop behind Corbett Lake Lodge, where he served some of the finest food, and we had all this gathered every other year. Uh, but I got a picture after he left. Uh, it was Peter, uh, Glenn, Wayne Maka, and Jerry with the bill trying to figure it out because. Glenn ended up reproducing the Talbert Mill at great cost. Far more than it would cost to buy the JW Mill. <laughs> because that was the technology he was, he was used for. to. Okay. He's used to. Ah, okay. And Jerry Foster tried like mad to talk to him and say, hey, no, buy the J Oh, no, no, you don't want to do that stuff. Well, he knew the Talbert Mill. That's pretty so cool. it's where you, you know, but that is being handed off, and it's going to stay alive, sweet, sweet grass rods. And I help them fitting ferals and stuff. But uh, well, yeah, is Glenn not building at all? No, he he was getting out. Glenn is what 82, 83 now. Jeez, I don't know. Yeah, that's it. Seems like you shouldn't be there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No, I mean uh, it. I, I'm would never make it as a carny. I'm horrible with ages, and it always feels to me like somebody's a good the 20 boys to 30 are no years long, younger you know, than As you say, yeah, it's fading. We go through eras. Okay. 
Yeah, well, this is the end of an era. Uh, Most of the people who's listening to this are going to be, uh, you know, if you're not into rod making heavily, it's probably uh, <laughs> no. not, not, not no, going to be your best one. But yeah, I'm we sure, uh, for character. marketing of bamboo, and I tell people, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I tell people a graphite rod makes you work for it. A good bamboo rod works for you. I take less as for cancer. Women love bamboo. It, it just easy. They let catch. It's not forcing. Hmm. It will. You just let it load, offload. You gotta load a graphite rod. It's stiff. It's mm-hmm. dumb. Has no soul in it. That is the big difference. I tell people. Good bamboo rods become part of you. It will last you a lifetime. You give them to your son and grandson. Because yeah. I got rods that were made way back in 1920 or so, still fishable today, still as good as they were. They have soul tool, and they perform. They work for you. Yeah. I, I well, Take care of your tools, and your tools will take care that, of you. That might be the answer. A lot of people ask me, why should I buy a bamboo rod? And I think maybe you just had the answer. I think that's that's, yeah. Ordinarily, I tell them if you got to ask the question, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> you get to a you point. You don't want that customer service. Uh, I, had, I, had a that friend of mine, I had a friend cast uh, work on. Uh, he actually uh, was a supervisor for the Northern District Park, and uh, he fished and he says, You know, you're ready for bamboo rod fishing the small streams when you know the cast you want to make and can't make it with graphite. Hmm. Because you can make those casts easy with a bamboo rod. It will load and just present the fly right where you want. So easy. Because it's the line. How much line do you need? you got to get in double hauling and all this. So when I test bamboo rods, Al Medved is a good example. He can... Uh, Put out 15, 20 foot of line. He just picks up one hand, no hauling, let the rod load and offload. You can feel if it loads and offloads how well it does by itself. Mm-hmm. It's working for you. That's why bamboo, I think, has survived all these years. People are coming back to it because. You could ask a lot of people, how many graphite rods do you own? And they own too many. And next year they come out with a new model. It's better. Well, it's faster. They, they, they're upgrading uh, graphite rods more frequently it's marketing. Than, than computers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cell phones. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, so, cell phones and, and PCs have have a longer what life cycle the, than uh, what, some of I these forget, rods. I forget. Uh, Whose law was every 18 months the speed Moore's of the Moore's law. Moore's yeah. law, yeah. I remember when I was working in that, doing the R&D <laughs> lab. And but there's no bamboo. It just works. Yeah. Well, there's. It's still the best material for fly rods. To, I guess to finish it out, there, there's, there's something to be said where. The newer technology is not always the best technology. Right. You know. It's the right tool for the right job. Exactly. On a mountain stream, well, and even on the rivers here, 
Now, the only time I use a graphite, I went down to Florida fishing salt water. Mm -hmm. No, no, don't do it. Uh, Sam ragged on me. I was going to use it on the Betsy when we went over there for trout and abuse it. And he said, no, no, don't abuse the rods there. You know, <laughs> let's beat up these old graphite rods I got. That's fine. And, and you pay $100 or whatever at the time, or you go take it in, and they had a free replacement. I'm, but I tell people, when you go and buy a graphite rod, you on the shelf, he said, this cast good. And they said, okay, I'll go back and get you a new model. Uh, I'll get you a new one. Oh, no. Buy the one you got because the other ones, <laughs> the, the lack of consistency, it's not the same. They roll stiffer. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Yep. Good, bad, or indifferent. It's not the same rod you had in your hand. With bamboo, it is the same rod. Very cool. Well, we wrapped this up. Yeah. We're getting ready for lunch I think, here. I think it's time to go hit the mess hall. So, so uh, oh, yeah. thank you for. You had mess call like it was it the Woodstock thing, and they had the. Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the taco bar today, so we want to get there early. Oh, oh there yeah. you go. There you go. All right, Chris, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Richard. You're welcome me. Thank you. It's good to be, you know, I've been here every year. I'm the only guy, I think, left beyond the way. The, the perfect attendance award? No. Did Miles said he came in the second year or something. So. No, I was here first. Yeah, you were. Yeah. And, and stuff. But, you well, know, I couldn't say it because I wasn't here. Really. I know. I. Uh, but the thing is, it's the knowledge and the people. You know, when I driving up, I'm a little bit more reflective this year because of personal things and stuff. But we lose people. We've had people here. Yeah. Do you remember JJ? You know, I used to go fishing with him. You know. Uh, yeah, I made uh, that rod, which was where did that taper come from? That was JJ's taper. It was a barrel rod. That gets into the Paul Young stories of barrel rods, and you know him coming back from being out. Martha Marie says, you got to make some rods, so he grabbed pieces, it's a one and it's probably a head and blank, because the early rods, he bought head and, and Edwards blanks. The dark blanks were actually head ends, and the light blanks were actually Edwards. Hmm. Well, no That's the old Ace and other stuff. Yeah, but JJ, I made it, Sam made one, I made one for Sam. And I think JJ's dad came. Oh, we had the crying spell on that one, and that was it. But that touched Sam a lot, hmm. JJ. And uh, Lewis passed, Harold's gone. Uh, another good friend of mine I had up here was Dick Wally. Yeah, Dick was a great guy. Mm -hmm. And I did all his photograph uh, photography for his upgraded. I have every one of Dick's flies. Well, Dick because was a I, soft heckle king of uh, yeah. pretty much everywhere. Mm. He taught me, and I st I carry him, fish him. I fish with friends, yeah. as I say. Uh, Lewis Martin. I mean, I was getting Christmas cards. He put one of those National Geographic ornaments, and he lived <laughs> right on the. How many people you know have a house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright? Just. Only one. <laughs> Only one. <laughs> Lewis. Frank Lloyd Wright, son. Exactly. That's awesome. I, that, those homes are so cool. Oh, my gosh. And, <laughs> I mean, there's more, you know what I mean? But, you know, that's, we have to appreciate the people and the camaraderie we have up here. 
I come back here, I'm also a native. They know me. I know the places. I got the guys down the road. It's good to see them every year. I stopped by and saw Paul, who plays in the music band over there, usually. But I go fish behind his house and stuff. I used to go with Pat Brown. Pat's gone, you know. Oh, yeah. And out, uh, Alex is not here anymore. And yeah. well, I'm glad you it, guys you just, are here, and glad your guys are sharing we, all these this wonderful is, yes, memories and, with our listeners. People have to appreciate the value of the museum out there because I used to go out to Lovells, to Corner Keys, to get my flies. <laughs> the last story, it's a Lovell story because me and John went out to buy flies from Corner Keys. All right. Yeah, well, I did, we did, used to do it. We went in, he wasn't there, but his wife was, and oh yeah. I bought some nice Borchers brown drakes and nice. We went down to the I went down below the 72 bridge around. I had one of the best nights ever. I got 12 to 15 nice browns in this on his flight. Next day we went back and we said, Where is he? Oh, he died Thursday night. I said, Oh shit, give me all the brown drakes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I got them all. It's I was going to buy his sign, but Steve Southard said no, no. We want to get it, you know, for the uh, clubhouse or whatever. I don't know what happened to that. Cornicky hmm. sign. I mean, that'd be a good one. I would. Back. I keep yeah. every now and then somebody's asked about that, and I just don't know who ended up with that. I I forget because Steve stopped me from buying that. It's the it's the because they had other delusions of what they wanted to do with it. <laughs> so, but that was mine. And I figured he died because the fishing turned <laughs> turned bad. But yeah, he his shop was something else. But you go there, before we had the uh, broadband wireless and that, sure. I had to go to the library at Crawford County and I appreciated the fly fishing corner and you look up and you see your old your old friends there in the books and everything. Mm -hmm. Jerry Dennis, when Vic used to have his thing, you were never talking about Jerry Dennis. Oh yeah. When I brought Dave Fitch up, you know, basically we had his I had his book and Dave used to do a ritual reading of Haunted by the Hex. Oh excellent. <laughs> But to come Victor the, before the house, yeah, that was perfect. When Victor had his parties at his old house along in, on the Holy War, Jerry was there, and I said, "Hey, Jerry, sign this." Oh yeah, and he sent this, and then he went to the thing, and I loved, and then he have a special annotation in there, and I loved it. You know, I mean. Larry Corey, I mean, he re remarked my. <laughs> Larry's a great I got guy. The, yeah. And I have the entire set of the maker's prints. They're still making money out there on them. I got number four on all of them. <laughs> because Larry marked my original. I, you know, one of these stupid things at the trout bump up. Oh, yeah, I'll pay you, you know, this. Print. <laughs> he remarked, and I got dibs on having number four. Oh, yeah. There you There's go. some good art down there uh, yeah. for that trout bump uh, thing. Oh, yeah. Those, you know, the thing is, where that tent is, is where, where Ray's is now. The, yeah, no, the uh, 
brewery in restaurant. Yeah, yeah right. So they, they call it Ray's now. Oh, okay. Like the old livery. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, I yeah. think we need to wrap this thing let's, up. And let's get call to the it a meal. But I appreciate Lovell's knowing that Art Sun runs, was the town manager. You had the museum. Those were good days out there. I enjoyed them because I used to go over. Uh, I got one of Dave's uh, Treisenberg reels and stuff. He lived yeah, there out there. We go fish. I used to take that. So we ha I have good memories about the whole thing, and it gets you to meet people, see things, and do things because of the camaraderie of the people at these gatherings. Thank Absolutely. you guys very much. Thank you. Thank Chris. you, Chris. Thanks, Richard. And listeners, thank all of you. Gosh, that was good. That was fun. Um, what a great bunch of people we have here uh, at the Gray Rock Gathering. And uh, definitely very humbling to be a part of. The uh, Chris, obviously, a fantastic gentleman. Um, very learned. And... Uh, a great pleasure to uh, sit down and have a conversation with. So um, there you have it. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we, <laughs> Richard and I certainly did, and we're having a great time at the uh, at the conclave. So, um, you know, maybe circle the calendar for next year, and who knows? Maybe it'll be another Gray Rock, and you'll have a chance to uh, rub shoulders with uh, all these cool rod maker types. So until next time as they say and as we learned on the uh practice basketball court uh that we were using as a casting area mind your back cast <laughs>